Welcome back to episode 2 for part 2 in my 5 part series discussing comparative anatomy and physiology. Today's theme of research recap is again locomotion. But in particular, we're looking at similarities across species in shoulder muscle architecture and organization implications for reconstructing non-mammalian synapsids. So, what does that mean? Basically, if we're tying things back into our first episode, which I plan on doing with the following three episodes, is looking back at those initial evolutionary trends. What were those key features that were noticed in the transition from water to land? With this one, we're looking at tetrapod locomotion, and of course, it's highly specialized. I mentioned a little bit about mannequin birds and just birds in general. Well, flying, or being aerial, is a form of locomotion that is highly specialized. For us humans, cursorial skeletons were specialized for running, um, bipedal movements. There's also arboreal, living in trees, I imagine these animals are fantastic climbers. Uh, One of my favorite climbers is the, uh, what is it called? The gibbon. Those long-armed, fascinating little mammals (laughs) with, they just effortlessly flow through these trees. Saltatorial, hopping, little bunny rabbits is what I like to think of. Asorial, digging and then sprawling, which is closer to our ancestral design. And so what I plan on doing with this episode, the theme of this episode is looking at comparative locomotion, not just comparative anatomy. So what are these key features contributing to specialized locomotion? And of course, how are these different specialized movements related to one another? How did they advance from one another? And how are they all similarly sourced to that initial transition to land? So looking into that, early tetrapods did have a sprung posture. So the propulsion were by limb rotations, and that's still used in many tetrapods. What I like to think about when it comes to locomotion, and I think this is just because I've had research experience or just um, overall animal experience with animal handling and looking at behavior, but in the Dr. Hugh Sachs lab, a lot of locomotion is observed when it comes to green anoles, brown anoles, or other little lizards alike. What happens quite frequently is endurance training or sprint training. When these little lizards are on the treadmill or running up their pole in their sprint training, the movement that's observed is obviously the sprawling posture, but it's very side-to-side propulsions. So you can see their entire body moving with each of these limb movements to get them forward, a forward propulsion. Whereas for humans or for more upright positions, upright postures, that movement involves less investment from all of the body all at once. And so only some limbs are required for that specific movement, whereas the other limbs can be focused on doing other things. So 
In the first episode, I mentioned kind of free movement that happened with the detachment of the pectoral girdle from the skull. Well, with the changes in posture, and of course changes with each specialization, there's even more free movement dedicated to specific features. So that shift from the sprawling posture into the cursorial locomotion, the limbs were brought underneath the body that provided for more efficient and rapid locomotion, stronger foundation for propulsions. That's what I like to think about. Back in my basketball days, our coach would always tell us about being a mountain, having that strong foundation. And that's what kind of um, is a key point for me here. That movement or the shift of our legs underneath kind of gives us that strong mountain foundation that we're looking for in strong and faster locomotion. That also means that there's changes to shoulder and pelvic girdles. Again, even more shifting, even more adaptations are occurring. So even more on the evolution of the shoulder girdle. There's the movement of limbs under the body shifted forces into that vertical upright direction, which led to the reduction of medial elements and an increase in scapular prominence. And so what was kind of um, really interesting to look at throughout this course was specifically in lab and actually diving into the comparisons of these features that we're discussing in lecture and research examples, but comparing the muscles. And that's a key feature of the research article that I'll be discussing or recapping today, if we're going in theme with my little title for this series. The article is published from 2019, so another recent one. And it's titled Broad Similarities in Shoulder Muscle Architecture and Organization Across Two Amniotes, Implications for Reconstructing Non-Mammalian Synapses. Initially, what this article kind of introduces and provides background on is that a rich fossil record of non-mammalian synaptids holds a key to unraveling the transition from sprawling to erect or upright limb function in precursors to mammals. And there, from that, using this previous understanding, using the records of fossil analysis and understanding, they're characterizing gross morphology and internal architecture of muscles crossing the shoulder joint in two morphologically conservative extant amniotes. They're looking at the Argentine black and white tegu. Um, this animal reminds me of like monitor lizards or like kimono dragons. They almost look like these really big, almost prehistoric looking animals that are, that are um, alive and dwelling now. And then they're comparing those to a Virginia possum. So <laughs> not the most advanced upright posture that we're thinking about, but an easy specimen to capture and observe in lab. And also a early on animal of herb kind of displaying this um, early erect limb posture. So while not the most advanced, highest achieving upright locomotor example, the reason why they chose the possum to compare to the tegus is to kind of have this um, 
closer resemblance so that they can show the similarities. And that they did. So diving into the background that these researchers used, they looked at the differences separating theory and locomotion from that of other quadrupeds. And that's usually understood as the contrast between erect and parasagittal versus plesiomorphic sprawling limb posture. So the mammal-like posture is associated with adducted limbs, joints aligned in a single plane, dorsoventral bending of the axial skeleton, and the ability to use asymmetric gaits. So when we're walking down the sidewalk, asymmetrical gaits, each leg is going the same distance as we're going across. And so we have equal amount of impulsion from each foot, pushing off of your toes when you're running. Um, but of course, our longer strides are in part to our adaptation to land. And of course, um, specialization in our particular mode of locomotion. Additionally, the spa uh, sprawling feature or sprawling posture features abducted limbs, multi-axial joints, medial lateral axial bending, and mostly symmetrical gates. And so thinking about, about my uh, green and old example, when they're on the treadmill, their entire body seems to be in motion with that. Um, it's almost like from nose to tail, that entire portion of the lizard is invested in this movement. And so if the bottom moves, both legs of the bottom move, while the top moves, both parts of the top move with the head. And so it's the most equal part. So most symmetrical form of movement. Whereas the asymmetrical feature, of course, we don't necessarily need our arms when we're walking. <laughs> Additionally, these major gaps remain in our understanding of non-mammalian synapsids. So kind of a biological rationale for this overall uh, article is that with the limited understanding, it's limited by the fact that the joints of pectoral skeletons uh, became unconstrained early on in synapsid evolution, shortly after the Permian emergence of the therapsid clade. And so what's difficult and what I found to be um, a common theme in a lot of these comparative forms or compar comparative articles is that previous literature has to rely on fossils because it's almost impossible to understand evolution when a lot of the animals and functions that we're interested in predate a lot of animals now and of course us and so when we're relying on fossils there are a lot of limitations um, chemical dating can only be so accurate but as we noticed in that the first article from episode one there can be uh, speculation on different periods of the origins of these fossils and so it's really up in the air but when it comes to direct comparison of live creatures or at least recent fossils it's really fascinating to see how all of these things are interconnected so with knowledge of muscle, each of the muscle's origins and insertion sites, from both of these species, the possum and the tegu, they decided that the aim of this overall research, of this comparison, was to establish a framework for estimating architectural muscle parameters 
for extinct stem synapsids that will strengthen strengthen future biomechanical musculoskeletal models of extent and fossil taxa. So basically, because we have limited understanding of fossils, by providing this comparison and establishing a framework for how to approach analysis of the muscle architectures and just overall kind of mapping if you think about it, then we will have a better approach and better analyses in the future when it comes to, of course, furthering, deepening our other understanding. So the aim of the study is to present a fundamental new insight into the acquisition of mammalic posture and locomotion. The researchers of this article really wanted to understand how did we get to where we are now when it comes to locomotion. So with the methods, we're looking at the two species that I already introduced, but the reason for this is because the similarities in life history facilitate direct comparisons of them. So both animals are opportunistic omnivores of similar size with high growth rates and high Fucundity. They're active foragers capable of sustained locomotion. They have similar basal metabolic rates. And um, the, these traits make them ideal animal models for exploring anatomical and functional adaptations for sprawling and erect limb posture in amniotes because of how similar they are in their, their environments. And so with these two species, there isn't uh, differencing environmental pressures on their forms of locomotion. So it's almost like their behaviors alone and the environments alone serve as a control. And so we can really focus on the differences in locomotion. So when it came to muscle identification, uh, topology and architecture, they're looking at how these muscles are comprised, how they're striated or not, um, how they are positioned while origin insertion are still similar, how are they positioned on the body. And so they're looking at muscles that spanned um, from the glenohumeral joint of the shoulder, looking at extrinsic muscles, so trapezius, serratus, rhomboidoid. Uh, those ones were not considered because um, they were a little bit harder to identify, but those extrinsic muscles were excluded uh, because of variability and it just it, it made it a little bit cloudy looking at these two species. They also didn't look at any soft tissue attachments. And so they took, um, they took previous literature and decided to expand based on the findings of digital and physical dissections of looking at skeletal morphology and muscle topology. What's really cool about this paper and what really stood out to me was their use of technology when it came to creating a 3D model of these features. And so 
instead of just trying to picture or looking at a picture of the muscle, they really formed a full diagram, a full illustration, a full model of how these muscles are inserted, how they're distributed, how, where the origin is compared to one another. And they did so using baseline x-ray microcomputed tomography. That's a mouthful. CT scans <laughs> to compare skeletal morphology. Additionally, they used um, just like normal imaging using Nikon metrology. And the CT technique was for specimen specific for optimal image quality. The muscles and bones were identified and manually isolated. And um, all comparisons were done on technology or on softwares like ImageJ, something easy to compute and um, have statistical comparisons. So unfortunately, all of the species involved were anesthetized. They were not live for this experiment. So looking at the physical dissections and the muscle, muscle architectural properties, they wanted to validate muscle attachment sites and measure muscle architectural properties. So they skinned and dissected um, additional tegus and for possums. Muscle tendon units were weighed with external, without external tendons. And uh, after those tendons were removed, each muscle was incised and photographed. And again, using image J, they were able to measure uh, fascial length and internal pinnation angles. So kind of giving a better idea of how these muscles are involved in locomotion. And I suppose how much they are dependent on those for locomotion. What they found in their results was that the dorsally oriented surface of the tegu humerus and the more caudally oriented surface of the possum humerus are primarily covered by the triceps complex, which acts to extend the elbow. Additionally, ventrally oriented surface of the tegu humerus and the cranioventrally oriented surface of the possum humerus are covered by elbow flexors and referred to as flexor surfaces. So we have similar extensor and flexor surfaces, both involved in uh, similar methods of locomotion. But of course, we're comparing sprawling to our early erect. With skeletal observations, they noted that both the tegu and the possum possess intragirdle mobility. And with muscle observations, they noted that a linear, linear rugosity on the humerus marks the area of attachment in both taxa stretching obliquely onto the external surface of the humerus and the tegu and running parallel to the diaphysis, the possum. They also found that the muscle is about twice as massive as in the possum as compared to the tegu, but it's significantly greater mass is accompanied by a greater length giving the two muscles comparable uh, PCSAs, which was an abbreviation for a stati statistical comparison um, that used quite a few factors of weight, length, and um, key features of the muscle 
and that just kind of served as their basis of comparison. Made it easier uh, with statistical analysis because they did have to do several uh, extra steps of analyses to kind of um, not mute, but but lessen the variability, make it make the results a little bit clearer. Additionally, they found that in the possum. Um, the deltoidus scapularis originates on the ventral two-thirds of the caudal surface of the scapular spine and inserts along a defined ridge running between the greater tubercle of the humerus. And in the tegu, the same feature originates from the ventral surface of the hook-shaped medial end of the clavicle and from the ligamentous sheet binding the clavicle to the interclavicle. So these fascials appear to be continuous across the fold between the cranial and caudal ends of the muscle. And between these two, the tegu and the possum, there's, um, in the tegu, it's a wedge-shaped muscle line just deep to the deltoidus scapularis and originating from the ventral process of the suprascapula immediately ventral to the origin of the deltoidus scapularis. What they're really seeing here is that while preferred modes of locomotion are very different, um, well, not so different, but specialized differently. There are still major similarities in pretty large muscle groups that are involved in locomotion. So on an architectural level, the similarities and differences are evident between the tegu and possum. The deltoidus, deltoidus scapularis, had a significantly greater um, mass and the PCSA, of course that, that unit of measurement that they used for these key comparisons. And they also found that in both animals, the muscles were parallel fibered. So kind of giving an idea of how these muscles are working with similar structures. Additionally, the mammalian infraspinatus and supraspinatus muscles are widely recognized as probable homologs of the non-mammalian supracoricoidus on the basis of developmental fate mapping and their shared innervation by supracoricoid and suprascapular nerves. These similarities, more so than differences in the muscles' uh, architecture, kind of shows how the specializations adapted from one another from one another and how again still really related and the reason why there's so much sprawling that was once observed in early tetrapods is still very prevalent in many species today but using those five or sorry using those multiple muscle groups they showed statistical statistically significant architectural divergence that may reflect shifts in locomotor function. If you have a chance to look at this paper, if you're interested in diving a little bit further than I did, I tried to recap these key features that I found really fascinating. Figure 8 is a really cool example of the use of that PCSA that um, just kind of shows the comparisons of the fascia length. So using all of those factors in each species to show um, fascia length of each muscle group.
And that, that figure really drives home these key differences and similarities in specific muscles. That kind of connects these forms of locomotions together. So, to kind of wrap things up here, the pectoral locomotor apparatus was an important locus of anatomical and functional reorganization in the evolution of mammals. Looking at morphological change during the transition of mammal-like posture and locomotion is documented by an extensive fossil record of non-mammalian synapsids, and by using the methods that these authors did, and using uh, large comparisons of major muscle groups that are involved in each form of locomotion, they did successfully establish a framework for reconstruction, reconstructing non-mammalian synapsin musculature. Especially because they had the comparisons and contrasting evidence of topology and architecture of muscles across the shoulder in um, extant phylogenetic and morphofunctional brackets. So, by evaluating the conservation and convergence of two possible explanations for the similarities in functional design, um, they provide implications for understanding musculoskeletal evolution. So, kind of continuing on with the themes here, not only are we looking at evolutionary trends in general of our transition to land, but we're also looking at evolutionary trends of locomotion. So with that, I will end episode two of this five-part series, and I look forward to talking next time.